Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? It's another uh, beautiful day at the Blue Chew World Headquarters here outside of Yellowstone National Park. Can't can't complain. Well, we can't complain either, man. We're excited to be here. We're going to be talking about one of the worst shows ever, Uncensored 1996. Buckle up, boys and girls. This is going to be a lot of fun. But before we get into Uncensored 96, we need to get your feedback from Uncensored 95 last week, which was a rather interesting show, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, you know, the feedback I got was really pretty good. And surprisingly, um, a, a lot of positive feedback. People went back and looked at the uh, the episode on WWE Network. And because of, I think, the way we broke it down and some of the perspectives that people heard, I found more people going, you know, I, I, I remember that show, you know, it really sucked bad. But I went back and looked at it after I listened to the podcast and I found it to be more interesting or I understood why, you know, you tried to do what you were trying to do. So I think people, you know, went back and looked at it from a different perspective, which to me, that's, you know, what makes this so much fun. It is fun. And let's get jump right into Uncensored 96. Let's get into it. Uncensored 96 happened on March 24th, 1996, right there in Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, the buy rate is a 0.8. Uh, the Uncensored 95 buy rate was a 0.96. So we're down a little bit here. It drew 9,000 fans, about a hundred shy of capacity. 7,300 of those fans paid $104,000. So attendance is up from uncensored 95, which only had 5,782 in the same building. But it is interesting because this is another one of those shows where WCW is running the same show in the same building uncensored 95, of course, also in Tupelo, Mississippi. Why was Tupelo the right place for uncensored? A couple of different reasons. The economics of the situation, which were still, you know, first and foremost in our minds at, at about this time in 96. Th- things were rolling. We were growing. Our revenues had increased. We were doing much better by every measurable um, category that you could look at. But we were still far from where we wanted to be. So cost was a consideration. Again, you know, Mississippi being a right-to-work state made expenses less. The fact that it was drivable. Uh, for not only most of the staff and and talent, uh, but it was an easy flight and an inexpensive flight for those who had to to fly in. So there were a lot of economic reasons why. And I think, you know, the underlying tactic or strategy, I guess, would be a better way to say it, was to try to find places, uh, locations, venues, that we would become an annual event at, which is why, you know, we we took another shot at Tupelo. One would not think of Tupelo as a typical big market, you know, pay-per-view venue because it doesn't have the prestige of a Chicago or New York or Las Vegas. But for a lot of reasons, like I said, economically, it made sense. And also, you know, when you when you promote wrestling 52 weeks a year, year after year after year, um, you find markets that are even though they may not be the biggest markets. It's a market that may be underserved with right. other forms of entertainment so that when you do come into town, you're a much bigger deal than you might otherwise be in a market like Birmingham or Atlanta or Chattanooga that tends to get a lot of other forms of entertainment. Well, WCW Entertainment was up here. Let's talk about the year-over-year growth from March of 95, which is the episode we covered last year, versus March of 96, which is what we're talking about today. Your estimated average attendance in March of 95 is 2,040 fans. 
Uh, your average attendance for shows here in March of 96 is up 82% to 3720. So quite the increase. And the same thing is true at the gate. Of course, you're averaging 19,000 and change at the gate in March of 95. A year later, we're up 95% to 38,000 and change. And you're actually selling out some house shows, but in fact, ratings are pretty much the same, maybe down a little bit, but all the other financial metrics are up. Uh, let's tell you some of the uh, backstory to sort of set the stage for this pay-per-view. We're coming off Super Brawl 6, in which we saw Ric Flair defeat the Macho Man Randy Savage in a cage for the world title, when Liz turned heel on Randy and joined the Nate. We also saw Hulk Hogan defeat the Giant in a steel cage match. And uh, I guess we should mention that on March 20th in Japan, Otani beat Chris Benoit to become the first cruiserweight champion. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about that, but obviously the cruiserweights are going to become a major part of Monday Nitro. Nitro has started in September of the prior year. So we're just about six months into the Nitro experiment. And now there's a cruiserweight champion. Uh, talk me through, you know, why you guys decided to bring out a belt for that, the name cruiserweight and why Otani was the right guy. Well, a lot of questions there. Uh, I'll, I'll take them one at a time. Why a belt uh, specifically for or a championship specifically for the cruiserweights? Because we were committed to the division. Uh, I wasn't interested in having the cruiserweight division be merely a a segment that occurred on a you know uh, occasional basis or an irregular basis. I wanted the cruiserweight division to be a a focus and a an important part of what WCW was all about. It was part of the rebranding of WCW. And it went hand in hand with my commitment to creating a more diverse and international vibe to our brand. You'll see that in this pay-per-view. You know, we and Tony, you know, Shivani uh, throughout his commentary, particularly in the first couple of matches, spends a lot of time really selling and driving home, you know, the international flavor to, to WCW's roster and to some of the, the action that was taking place. So, you know, the, the, while there were different reasons for all of your questions, they all kind of dovetailed to the same vision um, and execution, which was let's make WCW be perceived, and in reality, a much more international form of professional wrestling and bring that quality that didn't exist in WWE. Let's bring that unique kind of selling proposition to our product. And as far as Otani goes... Um, again, he was, you know, a, a phenomenal athlete. I, the the fact that he was internet, you know, a Japanese wrestler and represented that international flavor we were trying to bring. I think starting off with a, a, a Japanese champion was a way to add credibility uh, to the cruiserweight championship in terms of what it represented, and also in terms of the international brand that we wanted to to, to cultivate. It is fascinating though that you guys had so many uh, luchador cruiserweight champions, but you actually start with the Japanese here at first. And I think as that division evolved, it became more, probably more closely associated with Mexican wrestling as opposed to Japanese wrestling. Of course, Otani well, that's, I mean, a part of that Conrad is just because it was so much easier, you know, the, and it was not an easy task, you know, integrating the, the talent from Mexico into our, our programming because they had many of them were also working for whether it be AAA or whomever, they had other obligations, many of them. Um, and just getting them back and forth in the logistics of that was sometimes difficult. Uh, but it was still far easier than working around the Japanese schedule. So um, there you go. There, there is the why. 
Otani winds up losing that title to Dean Malenko. And, um, I guess it's worth bringing up that you guys did a, a light heavyweight championship before, uh, with, uh, Brad Armstrong. I think he was the last champion. And uh, I think that was back in like 92, he winds up having to forfeit the belt, uh, because of an injury and it just essentially becomes inactive. And now you guys bring it back here. I know that the business has ebbs and flows and people sort of change their mind. Uh, what was different about 1996? Is it the advent of nitro that you think really made you commit where maybe WCW had been hesitant or maybe stop and go before? Uh, no, I, I, well, yes and no. Look, nitro when, when that, you know, mandate landed on my lap and early on before we shot our first show. Early on when I made up my mind that the only way that we were going to succeed was being different than the WWE. I've talked about this before, but this is a perfect example of one of those things that I believe firmly because of the time that I spent in Japan. I believe firmly that a cruiserweight division would make us different than the WWE. Not, not, we weren't trying to be better than the WWE it was a concerted and disciplined effort to be different than the WWE. And and I knew that in order for the cruiserweight division to be successful, it had to be a real commitment. It couldn't be, oh, well, let's just bring back the light heavyweight title. There's a reason why I called it the cruiserweight division. And I got the, the name, you know, I basically looked at boxing. You know, boxing had lightweights, middleweights, you know, uh, cruiserweights. Flyweight, featherweight, all that stuff. Yeah, and, and I thought by having having the cruiserweight division, number one, it was a a a, a division that had never been re- that never really existed in wrestling. Now, obviously, we had light heavyweights. Other people have had light heavyweights, but the fact that we called it a cruiserweight division was different. It was different than what had been done in the past. And you, you know, if you read my book, or or if anybody does, or has heard me in the past talk about how important I wa- it was for me for Nitro to either be, you, you have really three choices. You can be, either be better than your competition, you can be less than your competition, or you can be different than your competition. Well, I knew we couldn't be better than the WWF at that time at what they did, which was targeting kids and children and that kind of animated cartoonish storyline. They were, they had it. They had those advertisers. They had that demographic. They were three generations old at that point. There was no way we were going to be better than them at what they were already fantastic at. My only, and I didn't want to be less than them. So, you know, by default, I had to continue to find ways to be different than the WWF. And the cruiserweight division was one way to do that. If, to your point, we were really committed to it and we, we thought it through and we made it feel special and unique. Something that, uh, popped up in the observer. I can't wait to ask you about here. Meltzer would write Johnny grunge was in the car with Hugh Morris. When he was pulled over in Florida, Kevin Sullivan and Eric Bischoff played a rib on grunge while in Florida and had a guy who pretended to be a cop pretend to arrest him. Uh, what do you remember about a prank on Johnny grunge here? Uh, that's not my style brother. I think, you know, Kevin may have, you know, Kevin may have told me about it, but you know, I don't, I never ribbed anybody. I was never, you know, directly involved in that kind of thing. So you know, Kevin may have done it. He may have told me about it. And somehow I got, you know, uh, hooked up to that in, in wrestling folklore, but I was not a part of it. 
Let's talk about some people moving and shaking here on March 5th. Kevin Nash would give his notice to the WWF that he was leaving and going to work for WCW. I know we've talked about this once upon a time briefly before, but when you went back and you watched this show, uh, for the first time in, in 20 something years, did the conversations with Kevin Nash come to mind at all? Uh, yes, it, it, they did. You know, and, and one of the fun things about the show, now look, the show is what the show is. And, you know, in general, it was horrible. There was a lot of things that made me cringe watching it. But at the same time, again, because my perspective is so different and so much time has gone by, when I put this show in context, in in with regard to the evolution of what WCW came to be only a few months after this, you know, this is March, this is the end of March, you know, three or four months later, we will have basically turned the wrestling industry on its ear with, with the NWO. And what's, what was fascinating about this show when I went back to watch it is, you know, remembering just exactly what I was not in detail, but, in general, what I was thinking, the direction I was trying to go, and knowing that at this point in time, the idea, which, you know, the idea for the end of you was something that had been forming in my head over the course of a year or a year and a half. It wasn't, again, I've said this before, but it's not like I sat down one day and said, okay, I'm going to come up with this idea. I'm going to call it the NWO. And here's the first thing that's going to happen. Here's the second thing that's going to happen. Here's the third thing that's going to happen. It wasn't like that. It was, hmm, wow, Japanese have a whole different style. They present the, the product much more realistically. The audience reacts to it much more realistically. The media treats it much differently than they do in the United States. How can I come up with a storyline that allows our product to achieve some of those same things? That was really the genesis of the NWO storyline, if you will, with regard to my experience in Japan. I didn't steal an angle or anything like that. It was just, wow, this is how they do it. This is how WWF does it and how WCW does it. And it's clearly not working over here. And what they're doing is working over there. How can I, how can I adapt some of the psychology and presentation? So that that was the beginning of that thought process. Well, about this time, you know, right here during this particular pay-per-view is when Scott Hall, I knew Scott Hall was coming my way. Now Kevin Nash is coming my way. Now is when the story is starting to form in my head. That was a completely different, it was a completely unique story. There was no NWO type angle in Japan. I challenge anybody to be honest about that in terms of the the core attributes of what the NWO represented, which was total fucking anarchy, you know, breaking kayfabe, doing everything you could possibly do 180 degrees from the way it had ever been done in the past. That's why the NWO worked. And it was believable. There was nothing like that exactly in Japan. There were intercompany rivalries and hostile takeover type things, but never with a group with the core character attributes of the NWO. So it, it, but, but it was the beginning, it was the Genesis. But now, as I said, in March, all of a sudden, I know I've got Scott Hall, all of a sudden I've got Kevin Nash. Now the idea of, wait a minute, what if I take these two guys who used to be with WCW, who have this chip on their shoulder because they didn't get the respect that they deserved. You could imagine if, if the conditions were exactly the same today, let's say there was a, 
another big company that was well established and had, had been going head to head with WWF or or whoever is the number one wrestling organization. And Chris Jericho came along. Chris Jericho's got that kind of you know chip on his shoulder. I'll show Vince McMahon. He should have given me that Brock Lesnar contract. I mean, you could essentially tell the same type of story with Chris Jericho's character today. And that's what I saw with Scott and Kevin. Here are two guys coming back to WCW, chip on their shoulder. Wow, there's my opportunity to create my kind of reality-based storyline. And it was all starting to form right about now at, at Uncensored 96. Man, there's a lot of stuff, you know, moving and shaking on both sides here. But one of the names that we've talked about recently from Uncensored 97 comes up here around Uncensored 96, where it says that Dennis Rodman was offered a spot as a guest referee in the Uncensored main event. And WCW spokesman Alan Sharp confirmed preliminary discussions. But uh, Rodman's agent, Dwight Manley, said he had no comment on any of that. Uh, do you remember what the initial idea might've been for Rodman to do on this show? I know it didn't come together for a year, but what was kicked around here in 96? Yeah, there was a couple of different ideas floating around. None of them were very specific. They were all kind of general and it was just, look, we, we, we were hoping to get Dennis to give us a shot in the arm from a media point of view. There was no real super creative or, or tactical plan to use Rodman. It would have been. How do we get this guy on board? How do we maximize our visibility, you know, in the media as a result of it? And how do we minimize our risk in terms of his involvement? So it was, that's why the referee idea was bantered about, but it, ultimately there was a scheduling issue because March is still, you know, kind of hot and heavy in the NBA season. Let's talk about uh, what's hot and heavy here in WCW. It's Johnny B. Bad. He quits WCW and signs a three-year contract with the WWF on March 14th. He was supposed to wrestle DDP in an I quit match at uncensored. Uh, when he quits, the booty man is put in the match. Meltzer would write that the gist of the situation is that Merrill was working without a contract. His most recent deal said to be by WCW sources in the $300,000 per year range expired on the 28th of February. He was offered a two year deal allegedly at the same money. And uh, there were other things in the contract that are being negotiated and, uh, supposedly uh, Mark Merrow shows up in Winston-Salem and wants you to sign a sheet of paper that guarantees him the same amount of money he'd been making while the two sides were in negotiations. And allegedly he wants this commitment because he doesn't want to get stuck making $150 per show or whatever the lowest paid guys on the roster were making at the time. And he also has in this document that if he were to suffer some sort of serious injury in the ring, while you guys are negotiating, he'll earn the full amount and won't be cut. So he'll still make his 300,000, even if he's not able to compete. And allegedly in the middle of this meeting, he tells you that he's been negotiating with Titan and that he has an offer on the table from them. And in some ways it's a better deal. And he wants some sort of clarification as to what your plans are for him creatively. And, uh, apparently that annoyed you to the point where you refuse to sign the paper. One thing leads to another and you ask him to finish up that night and put over Lex Luger. And here we are. So, uh, what, what do you remember? What really happened? Yeah, none of that, <laughs> none of that. Uh, and look, I'm not going to say none of it happened there. There probably was some conversation because we were negotiating that part of that, um, recall is true. There, there was a negotiation going on. Um, uh, but I remember specifically, I was in the Atlanta airport. We were on our way. I was on my way somewhere. I don't remember when it was or where it was. But uh, 
you know, Johnny came up to me and said, hey, look, Titan has made me an offer, and I believe Vince McMahon is going to make me a star. I said, well, Johnny, congratulations. <laughs> I mean, best of luck to you. And I wasn't being a, a dick. I just, I was, I was in a non-negotiable frame of mind with regard to Johnny. Johnny at that point, and nothing against Johnny, but look, tr- truth, truth be told, my opinion at that point was, first of all, I like Johnny on a personal level. I had been to his house and hung out with him socially, uh, my wife and I, and went over to, used, we used to go over there and watch boxing on pay-per-view. Uh, so there was, there was a you know good, solid personal relationship there. We weren't like super tight, but we were, we were very friendly. Uh, I had a lot of respect for Johnny as a human being and a pro, but here was the fact. The fact was that Johnny B. Bad character it had, had reached its peak two or three years earlier under Dusty Rhodes, who created that character. I didn't see that character really going anywhere. Johnny wasn't really high on my list of priorities in terms of repackaging. I didn't see a ton of potential in Johnny, primarily because he had spent so many years being Johnny B. Bad, and I knew it would take a long time to to lose that, you know, stigma, if you will. So he, he just, oh, this is going to sound so fucking horrible, and it shouldn't. But, you know, when you look at your entire roster and, and what you hope it could be or, or the direction you're going, sometimes certain talent doesn't necessarily fit at that moment. And Johnny was in that space. So when he came to me and he made it clear that he had been negotiating with Vince and Vince told him he was gonna, Vince was going to make him a huge star, you know, part of me took it. I was a little offended, not offended, maybe offended, or maybe I just got defensive because it was like, well, okay, well, what do you think we've been trying to do with you for a couple of years, you know, including, you know, prior to me being involved, he got quite a big push uh, from Dusty and others. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, I wish him well. And that was it. There was no real drama beyond that. He made his decision. We parted ways and he never did go on to become a star. His is, wife did. <laughs> is it true that, um, in the middle of this conversation, cause this is what was written. He said, I hope that something like, I hope after five years that I'm living on with the organization, that I'm living on good terms. And you assure him that he is very much not leaving on good terms. No, no, it's not true. I don't, I don't know where, you you know, that would have required either whoever said or wrote that to have been standing right next to me at the Atlanta airport in my last conversation with Johnny was the last conversation I ever had with Johnny that, that I can remember was at the Atlanta airport because shortly after that he was gone. He was in WWF and I liked Johnny. There was, it was he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't breach his agreement. He, you know, there, there was no reason to be angry about it. You know, if I would have felt like I really wanted to keep Johnny, I would have made an attempt to, and I didn't. So it's just, you know, when you look at these kinds of things in retrospect, and you just look at the basic facts surrounding the situation, it kind of automatically dispels some of the you know rumor and innuendo that existed at that time. Uh, it just there was no reason for me to be angry, you know. I, it's just no reason. Let's talk about uh, some other things that are happening, at least contract-wise, in the company. Uh, it's written in the Observer that uh, the Nasty Boys were given word that they were going to be dropped along with several others, and. The rumor and innuendo is that this is really going to go to 
the ability to afford to bring in Hall and Nash. And um, Turner has some sort of new budget. This is the rumor and innuendo reported in the Observer. And Meltzer even writes, they'll have to get rid of wrestlers, a few of whom may be able to be marketed by the WWF. While we haven't been given any other names of wrestlers cuts officially, other names that have been talked about as those on the bubble include Shark, John Tenta, and Bunkhouse Buck. So obviously the Nasty Boys don't wind up getting cut. But I because that because that rumor and innuendo just wasn't true. This is, you know, you asked me to comment on the rumor and innuendo. And before we go too far down the path with this, I've, I've got to address that portion of the rumor and innuendo. There was, of course, there were always cuts. There were guys like John Tenta and Bunkhouse Buck and others that were just, they were either daily players in some cases or guys who were on short-term contracts who I clearly didn't see being able to have a role long-term. So I'm not suggesting that the aforementioned talent, you know, Tenta, Bunkhouse Buck, and, and others, weren't possibly on a list or on a bubble, or by virtue of the fact they were on short-term or nightly agreements, suggested they were. But for whoever wrote that to suggest that they had some kind of inside information or that there was a discussion with the Nasty Boys about budget cuts, now let's take that fucking dystopia even further and for this person to write or suggest or infer that they knew that there's a new Turner budget cut. And as a result, you know, these guys are on the bubble is a completely false premise. It's not true. It's fiction, all designed to create the illusion that this person knew something or had insight that they didn't really have. It's bogus. Well, let's get to the uh, pay-per-view, but before we do, I guess we should tell everybody about the dark matches. Uh, JL upset Dean Malenko in three minutes and 20 seconds. Meltzer gave it two stars. JL, of course, is Jerry Lynn. We also would see Jim Duggan get a win over Bubba Rogers. Uh, VK Wall Street would come to ringside with Duggan's two by four and give it to Bubba. That got uh, a quarter star. Dick Slater would pin Alex Wright in a minute and 55 with Medusa chasing Colonel Parker around ringside. That got a dud. It's really hard to imagine that this is the WCW that's going to have the NWO in just a few months. And then Rick and Scott Steiner go to a no contest with the nasty boys. When the road warriors interfere attacking both teams, it is sort of weird. You know, I get the undercard so far, but the Steiners and the nasty boys with the road warriors interfering, that could have been on the show, huh? Yes. And no, I think when we get further into this particular pay-per-view, you'll look at the road warriors and they were you know, they weren't really the road warriors of old, you know, they weren't, they were beginning to become more and more limited to, you know, the kind of street fight type Chicago street fight type matches that, you know, they were having later on in their career. Uh, they, could they have been on the show? Of course. But, you know, again, I think is, as we'll see throughout this show, I mean, this show is a perfect example of, again, as, as we did last week, in Uncensored 95, trying to do things as differently as we could and trying to find something that worked. There was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of goofy shit that happened. There was a lot of cool shit that we did. We talked about that last week. It may not go down in history as like the greatest, you know, segment on a pay-per-view or the greatest match on a pay-per-view or the greatest interview on a pay-per-view. But I think if one is objective or at least looking at it from the perspective that that we at WCW were looking at it from, we were trying everything. We were throwing tons of stuff up against the wall to try to get a sense of what would work. And 
Could we have thrown, you know, Road Warriors and Steiners on this pay-per-view? Of course we could. Would it have looked and felt like something that we've probably done a hundred times previously? Of course it would. And that's what we were trying to avoid here. So while we had, you know, Medusa and Colonel Parker, you know, they could, you know, Steiners and Road Warriors could have easily been in that spot. But guess what? We wanted to try to do something different. So could they have been? Sure. Why weren't they? Again, if you look at this entire pay-per-view, it was really about let's let's find some new ways to present this material. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Tony and Bobby Heenan are presenting some new material. When the show starts, uh, Tony wants to know why Bobby is wearing leather instead of his usual attire. And Bobby says something like, uh, I don't want my Armani suit to be ripped off. I'm wearing leather so I can wash stuff off. You know what I mean? Let's just, yeah. It was weird, and I, I noticed that. And usually Bobby was so fast on his feet, but not only was it an Armani, Armani suit, um, he also said it was a $225,000 Armani suit. So, <laughs> right, you know, the $225,000 suit thing kind of just went, what the fuck? He clearly wasn't expecting that question and just kind of lobbed one off the tip of his tongue that missed the mark completely. The other thing I noticed about this, and, you know, I pointed this out in the last couple of pay-per-views that we've watched what a great job tony did and dusty and bobby but tony primarily is the traffic cop in the trio uh, really setting up the stakes trying you know as best he could as an announcer to create some anticipation for what was coming up and he really in the previous pay-per-views did i thought a phenomenal job of kind of going through the checklist and making sure you do everything you should do in that opening segment this opening segment was the opposite of that it was actually a waste of time. It was a quick little $225,000 Armani suit. Why are you wearing a leather coat question? Uh, the response was silly. And there was really no setup for anything to come. Uh, it was so general that it, we, we actually didn't even need it. We could have gone right into the first match and not lost a, lost a step. One of the things that you guys do a good job of, or at least as much as you can, is you've got this big cage set up near the entrance. So every wrestler who comes out has an opportunity to see the size of this thing and react to it. Dusty's trying to promote the main event saying, when you take a cold, hard look at the situation, this is danger and Hulkamania needs to survive this thing to carry on to the nineties. And Bobby is pushing that danger is one cage, but what's danger with three cages and four tiers and 20 men who knows what's going to happen. So you're doing your best to sell this and. You don't need to sell this first match, man. These guys are working their ass off. Conan retains the United States title against Eddie Guerrero in nearly 19 minutes. And, um, I really enjoyed this match. I know that, uh, some of the uh, reports were that it could have been better, blah, blah, blah. Meltzer gave it three and a quarter stars. I thought it was good stuff though. Uh, Meltzer would write the negative about doing the low blow finish was that they did about 30 low blows the rest of the show without any leading to a pin. What did you think of the match watching it back for the first time in more than 20 years? Uh, yeah, a couple of things that jumped out at me, uh, right off the bat. Uh, number one, you know, 19 minutes for a Conan match is a long damn time. Yeah. And I, and I was, when I was watching it back on WWE network, of course, you could see where the segments break. And as this thing started out, I went, Holy cow, this is going to be a really long match. And for a guy like Eddie, uh, you know, his match, you know, you needed enough time to really, you know, tell the story, you know, beginning, middle and an end, look for some good transitions that were emotional. So the audience is engaged so that at the finish of the match, you've reached a crescendo. I mean, that's the basic, you know, structure of a match. 
and I thought, well, 19 minutes is a long time to for a guy like Eddie, who is a faster pace. You know, that's the thing about cruiserweights, or, or certainly was back then at least, is the pace of that match was much faster, which means that you need to be able to cram all of that story and psychology in the three acts that you typically would want to have into something that is a little bit more um, consistent with the style of match these guys have. If you go out there and burn the barn down for 19 minutes, by the time you're getting to the finish, unless you're in super good shape, you're going to be kind of dragging ass, and the finish of the match isn't going to be as good as the probably the body of the match and probably not nearly as good as the opening of the match. So that was my thought going in. Um, I was pleasantly surprised watching it back you know, recently uh, this morning, as a matter of fact. On St. Patrick's Day, no less. I'm watching wrestling. It's 20-some-odd years old. But what I was really pleasantly surprised about was how great Conan looked. Um, he... I, this may have been the best in-ring presentation that Conan, Conan possibly ever had in WCW. Not saying that he didn't have more important roles and in more important scenes, but if you just look at the body of the match from bell to bell and how it played out in the ring, I thought Conan did a phenomenal job. Eddie's Eddie. He's always he's always phenomenal. But Conan, I felt, was really, really on top of his game in, in, in the ring with working with Eddie. If you go back and watch the match, hit that 950 uh, time code somewhere in that area, a tremendous sequence of moves back and forth between Eddie and, and, um, and Conan. And Conan looked particularly great. The stakes, I thought, were really well laid out. The fact that, you know, the, the backstory of, the, you know, these two guys being friends and then the audience kind of anticipating who's going to turn, who's going to get to that point in the middle of the match where they're going to, you know, throw their friendship out the window and get get down and dirty. You know, that was established, you know, pretty early on. Um, the low blow, I got to tell you, I'm going to call Conan next week and ask him because it was such, first of all, I went back and watched it two or three times. And I watched the replay two or three times. I didn't even see the low blow. It looked to me like Eddie basically nutted himself as he was coming over the top of Conan uh, because it was so awkward. And I could see Conan talking to Eddie on the cover. And the way Eddie was selling, it was not a theatrical sell. Uh, it, if it was, it was a poorly done one. And that wasn't Eddie's forte, doing things poorly when it came to selling. That, that finish looked so awkward, and I swear to God, I can't imagine anybody, even sitting at ringside, saw the low blow. You know, Dave's comments notwithstanding, which, by the way, I would probably agree with without even having noticed it in the rest of these matches, because that was one of the flaws in, in WCW, is, you know, guys going out there and repeating the same things that had happened in the match before, particularly high spots or heat spots. Um, as Dave is probably referring to here. But I, I just, looking at this match as a standalone, I, if you go back and look at that finish, I, um, I'm pretty sure that that was an improv type of finish because it just was so awkward and uncharacteristic for Eddie. Let's keep it going here and talk about the next match on the card. Uh, this is one that, um, well, a lot of people are going to talk about. Uh, I guess before we do that, we should say that Robert Parker and Dick Slater do an interview with Mean Gene, and Parker says he's going to win the night for Elvis and the male gender. Watching this back, how much was the Eric Bischoff I know groaning? No, I wasn't. I don't know why you would say that. 
Um, I wasn't groaning at all. I thought it was a great way. Again, what was our goal? What were we trying to do at this time? We were trying to be as different from the WWE as we could possibly be. And this was different. Now, I'll, I'll also say, going back and look, because I completely forgot about this. If, if you would have asked me three days ago on the phone about this, I would have said, shit, Conrad, I have no idea what you're talking about. But going back and looking at it and now thinking about, you know, this was 1996. This was an intergender match. And it wasn't like a goofy comic book, you know, Braun bikini, stupid shit match. This was a legitimate match. Now it was a gimmick match because Robert Parker what was a manager. It wasn't a, you know, typical roster type of, of character with a, you know, a long-term storyline going into this thing. But it was a good intergender match that didn't exploit Medusa <clears throat> from a, from a, a, a typical, the, the typical way that we would have all, including WWF, exploited women at this time. This was a straight-up intergender match, and Medusa was made to shine. And, and Robert Parker made her look good. So, no, I didn't I, I didn't hate it going into it, and I'm relatively proud of it now because this is another example of WCW, again, I'd say, you know, not intentionally, not by design, but being ahead of our time. Oh, I didn't hate the uh, the match. I just meant him saying he was going to win it for Elvis and the male gender. It was just funny. Well, we were, no, well, we, we were too below. Robert Parker was, you know, he was that guy. He's, you know, he's an Alabama guy. You know, that was his character. I mean, listen to his voice. Of course, he's going to put over Elvis Presley. You know, Elvis was born in his backyard and we were in Tupelo. And that was the reason for that comment, I'm sure. So let's talk about the next match. This is uh, something you need to go out of your way to see. It's Fit Finley, who's being billed as the Belfast Bruiser here. And he gets a win over Steve Regal by DQ. That goes 17 minutes and 33 seconds. It's Tony Schiavone's favorite match in the history of WCW. Uh, it got three and a quarter stars. Uh, that's word right. Tony Schiavone made a comeback on this match as he got it over as being brutal, even though a lot of what was taking place would go over the heads of many, if not most viewers. This was a super stiff, all Japan impact type of match with no hot moves, no build, no psychology and a horrible finish. It really wasn't an entertaining match, but on a believability scale, it was more believable than almost anything you would ever see in the U S short of a UFC match. And it was more brutal than most of those. Uh, not that this is a match of the year, but it is a must-see match. The two who have wrestled against each other for years, in fact, Finley is Regal's favorite opponent, just pounded the crap out of each other. Finley's offense was the most believable in North America. At one point, Bruiser threw a punch to Regal's nose, which broke his nose and pretty well messed up his face, and he may need surgery as a result. Regal was bleeding from the nose heavily when Bobby Eaton and Dave Taylor interfered for a DQ, and after the match, Taylor slapped Finley incredibly hard. Wow. What a match this is. It is a spectacle. You should go out of your way to see it. I don't know that people talk about it enough. What did you think of it, Eric? Again, I liked it a lot because it was consistent with the agenda that we had at the time, which is to do present something different. That's not something that you would have ever seen in the WWF at that point or probably ever will. Uh, it, it, it served its purpose. Again, the theme, the effort, the agenda, uh, consistently throughout most of what we were doing at this time was driving home that international um, vibe to WCW because that made us different. And these two guys, again, fit into that agenda. It was part, it was the same, uh, part of the same agenda as we had done with Eddie and, and Conan and Otani and, and all of the cruiserweights is to, to make the show feel different than the WWF. And this one certainly did. I, I liked it because I've always liked Steven Regal on a personal level. I like his style. 
Um, same with Fit, a super, super guy. And I knew this match was not going to appeal to the masses. This is a match that was going to appeal to the 5% of the audience that really, really is into this type of thing. Your average fan is not going to find this match something to be excited about. But having it on the card is a part of our buffet to kind of balance out you know, some of the sillier shit that we were doing. Um, I thought was was really important. And I thought the overall match was good. I thought the highlight for me, because again, I had completely forgotten about it till I went back and watched it, was watching uh, Earl Robert Eaton make his debut as a part of this because he he did a great job. One of the other things I really appreciated about this is the commentary. There's a great line in here with Bobby Heenan. Um, Regal's put an arm bar on Finley and he says he can now scratch parts of his body that he couldn't before, which is kind of fun. Uh, next up, we've got an interview with Jimmy Hart and, uh, the giant mean Gene Okerlund is conducting it here. And Gene announces that the winner of giant Loch Ness will face flair for the world title. The next night on nitro, which almost feels like a spoiler. And, uh, Tony is talking about how Medusa threw the women's title for the WWF in the garbage. And he even says the WWF by name here, mean Gene does a plug for the hotline. And, um, then he brings in Loch Ness for an interview. And Gene says he wants to introduce him to his neighbor who is a dentist. Uh, some fun backstage skits here. I really miss Mean Gene when I go back and I look at these segments. What do you think about these? Uh, two, two or three things. You know, like you, every time I see Gene now, I f- flash back to the last time I saw him. <laughs> and, it, you know, I always get that kind of uh, melancholy kind of vibe. So, yeah, that, that was my first thing this morning when I watched this. You know, secondly, again, I, I cringe when I see some of this last, well, not the last, but hanging on to that 80s character and psychology and trying to make that work. It's just, you know, one of the things I thought about, you know, over the last few years now when I've been so... You know, people talk to me about gimmick matches, and as you know, the first thing I'll say is I fucking hate gimmick matches. Well, and I think this particular pay-per-view may be one of the reasons why. You know, I was, I we tried so many things, and all of these crazy throwback to the '80s, you know, spectacle. Which this entire pay-per-view was a spectacle. There was very little real storyline driven in any of this stuff. It was kind of the storyline was slapped together after the fact. You know, sometimes it's like you know. When, when we were booking these things, we were just booking talent and, you know, matches that we thought would be good. And then, you know, had to rush and try to connective tissue and all the backstory. To me, this whole match or this whole pay-per-view was one big themed spectacle. And it was a themed spectacle that was really based on 80s psychology and 80s characters. And it just didn't work. You know, when I see somebody like Loch Ness and the Giant and Jimmy Hart and even the opening of the show was so cornball, it it, it should have been more of a Halloween Havoc opening than than uncensored. It just had that silly, corny, really bad 80s vibe to it. And that was kind of my thought going back, looking at some of these interviews. The match here that we're going to talk about next, you've pretty much ran down and given your opinion on so far. It's Colonel Parker pinning Medusa. In just under four minutes, uh, Parker is announced at 197 pounds, which Meltzer says 
as a weight he probably hasn't seen since high school. He's probably closer to 297 and even writes for what it was, given the limitations of Parker's character, it was entertaining, though it would be impossible for the two to have any kind of real match. And um, he would continue. Medusa couldn't even keep a straight face after her first arm drag. Parker wound up going for a slam, taking a few drop kicks off the ropes, and finally went out for a German suplex. Slater kicked Medusa's leg out as she held the bridge, and Parker rolled her over for the pin. One star. I thought they did a good job with the uh, the finish with the bridge, and it, it, the German suplex looked good. I think it's underrated and uh, ahead of the curve, certainly, from what we're seeing now. Anything else you want to add to this one? Yeah, yeah. the note that I made to myself was I think this was a typical example of one of the biggest flaws in WCW at this point is on, on the creative side of the equation, there was no long-term thinking, which was consistently one of my biggest frustrations. And in saying that, I want to make it clear, I didn't have a solution. I knew it was a problem, but I didn't have the solution and I wasn't able to um, cultivate a solution out of the creative team that was working with me at that point. We'd all talk about it. We would all acknowledge it. And for years, I had been hearing from other people who had worked at the WWF how one of their core strengths, especially Gene Oakland, Gene, Gene was in my ear constantly about this is one of the core strengths of WWE programming was that they had their storylines laid out a year in advance. Well, tell that to anybody that works for WWE today, and I'm pretty sure they'll laugh in your face because the shows typically get rewritten, you know, right up until, you know, moments before they, they start to air. I think there's probably a general direction today, but I didn't know that. I didn't have that experience working in WWE and certainly didn't have the experience that I have now. So I was under the impression, at least in 95 and 96, when I started really, really kind of paying really close attention to creative, that, you know, that was a flaw for us. And I think this match with Parker and Medusa really illustrates that more than anything. As I said a few moments ago, sometimes when I go back and watch these shows, it feels like, okay, we need a really good card. Let's book a really good card. And then the storyline was kind of an afterthought. And I think this typifies that because this match could have been a much more important match on this card. There was clearly an opportunity to build a lot of anticipation given the intergender nature of it and, and all. This could have been a vehicle to really get Medusa over, but it didn't. And part of the reason it didn't, in my opinion, is because there was no real plan for it to. This was, hey, we need a really cool match. We need something different. Let's book, sh you know, Medusa against Parker. God, that'd be great. And it was for one night, but it didn't go anywhere after that. And I think that's a that's a big uh, it's a big loss for us. I guess we should mention one of the ways this was set up was Parker was supposed to marry Sherry on Nitro, but Medusa interrupts and attacks Sherry. Uh, I guess Medusa was supposed to be the wife in storyline. Uh, and as you said, doesn't really go anywhere from here. Uh, Lee Marshall interviews the road warriors about their match later in the day with sting and Booker. And then we get booty man who's replacing Mark Merrow pinning diamond Dallas page and what was billed on television as an, I quit match, but it turns out to be a regular match where Page would retire if he lost, but he loses and doesn't retire. Uh, this match goes way, way too long. 16 minutes. It gets a dud rating. Um, Meltzer would write, 
Uh, Kimberly slapped him stunning page and booty hit a high knee, which was more like a low knee for the pin in 16 minutes. Booty man then kissed Kimberly and she sold it. Like it was the first kiss of her entire life. Even by the standards of pro wrestling, this angle is one of the most unrealistic things in the world. Dud. He didn't love it, but he did say that DDP looked a lot better here. That he had lost a lot of weight and was, uh, looking better, but wow, not the right chemistry for a pay-per-view here. What say you? I feel really bad for Paige going back and looking at this. Now, granted, Paige wasn't the page that we came to know, you know, later on in 96, 97, 98. At this point, Paige as a character, as a talent, was still pretty awkward in finding himself and wasn't one of my favorite characters to begin with just because I didn't like all the gimmicks. And, and his whole presentation to me was just, it, it just didn't do anything for me. Um, it, it was kind of like a midday hot dog at Walmart. It's just, yeah, it's all right. If you're starving, it's great, but you'd rather not have to eat that if you don't have to. And that's why I felt about Paige's character at this point and the goofy storyline with him and, and Kimberly, um, only exacerbated and taken to lower depths by the fact that booty man, which is like a goofy ass fucking gimmick to begin with. He was so horrible. You know, that high knee that, you know, Meltzer referred to, uh, it was, I, I don't know. I, I think Meltzer was being gracious, calling it a high knee. It just, just looked like a mistake. It was just a clusterfuck. And again, such a typical example. And the same thing, by the way, with Paige and, excuse me, with um, Medusa and Parker. Uh, even the, the, the finish with Guerrero and Conan. If you look at the finishes that we've had up to this point, even with a match like Guerrero and Conan, which was really, really a pretty good match, the finish was fucking horrible. You know, so many of WCW's finishes didn't live up to the quality of the match <laughs> that, that it was a part of. And this finish was just about as bad as bad can be. Yeah. And you guys had fun on the commentary during this one. I feel bad for Tony here too, because, uh, as he's dancing around the ring, Tony says he's one of the best in the world. I, I mean, it's just fucking booty man. One of the best in the world. Oh, it's, I mean, go back again, you know, your, your eyes will bleed and, and I'll apologize for that in advance. But, um, if you go back and watch this on the WWE network and just look at booty man's gimmick, I mean, this is, th this guy has, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I say I don't know how he ever made it as far as he did. Clearly, he made it as far as he did because of his relationship with Hulk. That's it. That's the beginning and middle and end. Had it not been for Hulk, you know, Ed Leslie would have lasted about 12 minutes in the professional wrestling industry. But, you know, it is what it is. It was what it was. And Booty was in the spot he was in because of his relationship with Hulk and, and the leverage that he had. But go back and look at his gimmick. I mean, it was it was like... Yeah, it's like he found a suitcase that the Midnight Rockers used to have in the 1980s, and he found it in a locker room somewhere and stole all the gimmicks out of it. I mean, it was so fucking bad. Even in 1996, it was dated. You know, the only thing he needed was some, you know, tassels and fringe hanging off his biceps, and he would have been the complete, you know, iconic 1988 image of what a character should look like in professional wrestling. Let me just tell you how much I fucking love it. You just called him booty for short. That was tremendous. Uh, during this match, uh, dusty says something like Johnny B bad was run out of town because he couldn't hang with the big boys play. 
And, uh, there's a WCW 900 commercial where Johnny B. Bad's face is blocked out while he's talking to staying at a restaurant. It's just hilarious stuff. And I guess we should mention the storyline here for this match is Kimberly has won $18 million in a fucking bingo game and DDP stole all of her money. Uh, and I think a lot of the old ECW originals would be shocked that there was ever $18 million involved in bingo. Uh, <laughs> See, that's an example. Now, I'm going to bust my own balls here. Why the fuck didn't I raise my hand and go, hey, wait a minute, bingo? I mean, do we? can't we make this at least a little bit believable? There's a fucking lottery out here, and people could actually, if they want to, let themselves believe that storyline, even though deep down inside they know it's not true, but at least it's not so stupid that they feel dumb trying to believe it which is kind of like where you should start from, in my opinion, when you write a wrestling storyline or any storyline for anything, kind of make it at least so the people watching it who really want to kind of get immersed in it have permission to. If you make it so fucking stupid before they even have a chance to think about it for 30 seconds, you're never going to get them back. They'll never invest. Why didn't I, you know, I should have. Somebody, I should have raised my hand and said, uh-uh, no bingo, lottery, simple change. One's a little bit believable and not completely asinine, and the other isn't. Anyway. Next up, Lex Luger and uh, Jimmy Hart are doing an interview with Main Gene, and uh, at the end of it, Main Gene tells Lex Luger to go blow it out your ass, which is kind of fun. Uh, Lex is supposed to be in the match with Sting against the Road Warriors. Sting and Lex here are the tag champs. Uh, next up, Loch Ness comes out to what would wind up being Ray Mysterio's music. Kind of fun that maybe the lightest guy wound up with the heaviest guy's music. Uh, the giant pins Loch Ness in two minutes and 34 seconds with a leg drop. And uh, Meltzer would write, giant took one great bump, which supposedly wasn't planned. Loch Ness is the worst, but I think this is the last we'll see of him. Negative one star. Smarten everybody up. Who was Loch Ness? Maybe the other name people are familiar with. God, I don't even remember. You know, he was so he was in and out so fast. It just when I saw him on this paper, I went, "Holy crap, who is that guy?" I had actually forgotten about him uh, until I saw this, but he wasn't around long enough to leave much of an impression. You tell me, who was he? Giant Haystacks, one of the oh. uh, big English European stars. He came over for this quick shot here, and he is uh, uh, putting over the giant in short order here. He's, he winds up being diagnosed with cancer and leaves WCW, we would lose him in November of 98 of lymphoma. Uh, but that's uh, a little notable moment for a European legend, although maybe not the type of showing he would have hoped for. That means he's going to get a title shot, though, he being the giant on Nitro uh, against Ric Flair. And he would wind up beating Rick to win the world title, and then, of course, later lose it to Hulk Hogan at Hogwild 96. After the Giants match, we get an interview with Sting and Booker T. This time it's done by Mean Gene, of course. And Sting is trying to, I don't know, talk gangsta here. He says something. No, Sting, Sting is all street, bro. Straight he's, OG, he's, brother, right? Oh, yeah. He's bringing that Venice Beach OG style to the show. I thought it was pretty funny, especially because he was all on face paint. If you look at Booker T and 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 sting and sting is going all gangster on him. <laughs> just imagine what booker was thinking when this was all happening he had to be busted i bet you it took everything he could do not to bust out laughing because i can't think of anybody 
more non-OG than Steve Borden. It was I, great. I love that all of a sudden Eric Bischoff's uh, connoisseur of OG. This match is way too fucking long. Sting and Booker T beat the Road Warriors in 29 and a half minutes. It's a Chicago street fight. And man, this thing felt like it just lasted forever. Three and a half stars. Sting and Booker T get the win. Uh, what'd you think of this one? Uh, well, you, you know, you, 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 you stole my headline. It went way too fucking long. No to any bookers, you know, present future <laughs> want to be bookers. You know, when you have a match like this, it's typically not a storyline driven match that you, there's no way you're going to lay this thing out with any kind of coherent psychology that the audience is actually going to grasp. I mean, you may lay it out in your own mind. You may lay it out on a piece of paper, and it may make sense to you as a performer, but I guarantee fucking to you, if it's anything that's even close to what I normally see in these kind of gimmick matches, they're not really storyline-driven, and there's very little psychology to grab a hold of uh, when you're watching it. Now, I will say that WWE typically has phenomenal finishes that sometime out or most times in my opinion outshine the body of the match and it's like a really good movie you know you could sit in a movie theater for 80 minutes and go mm, i don't know kind of wishing i didn't come to this movie and then the last 10 minutes you know knock your block off and you walk out of there thinking wow that was really a great movie you forgot that the previous 80 minutes were kind of marginal if the ending is good and even though WWE, I mean, I'm not suggesting that they don't have great matches. They do consistently have phenomenal matches. But in my opinion, especially back at this period uh, or during the Monday Night War era when they really stepped up their game going into 98 and 99, their finishes were phenomenal. I mean, they were really good finishes that often camouflaged what would otherwise be pretty average match. We had the other problem. We would typically have pretty decent matches, but the, the finishes were consistently fucking nonsensical or didn't add to the drama of the match that, that it concluded. And this was, you know, another example of it. If you're booking a, I've never finished my thought. If you're a current or future booker, keep these kinds of things under 12 minutes because otherwise they just get redundant and look like shit. Yeah. Even Meltzer would say the first 10 minutes was wild, but it really drug after that. Now here's why we're really here. Let's get to it. Your main event. Oh my God. One of the worst main events in history, but there's lots of rumor and innuendo, and I can't wait to get you fired up here. Meltzer would write Hogan, who has full control of his own programs and is basically the head booker, even though Kevin Sullivan has to handle most of the dirty work decided, which some believe was due to the heavy influencing from Savage to change the main event at WCW uncensored from a one-on-four match to a two-on-eight four-decker cage match with rules that still haven't been fully explained. Hogan released this information to the company in midweek uh, that he was adding Savage and four heels to the main event. Savage's false count anywhere match with Chris Benoit was already a problem since Benoit is on tour with New Japan. If need be, Benoit could have come back early as Booker T is going to do for the show. The last big show in the New Japan tour is on the 20th, etc., etc. But they feel like they need something because now Johnny B. Bad has quit the promotion. <laughs> Hogan also added four oversized heels to the mix, three of whom were Tom Tiny Lister, formerly Zeus of the WWF, while he was the lead heel in that movie. Jeep Swenson, who is a Southern California Gold's Gym type, who had both boxed and who had appeared in muscle magazines to have the largest muscular arms in the world. 
and one man gang. The final spot was to either be taken by shark or warlord, perhaps as a long shot. The ninth person could be Brian Pillman. It's been made pretty clear as the trend in wrestling shifts towards smaller and more athletic wrestlers that Hogan is still living in the 80s size era and the Titan spoofs on WCW in regard to steroid testing seem to gain more validity by the week. And Meltzer would continue Hogan's frequent changing of the booking winds up frustrating everyone combined with the fact the Saturday shows, which he rarely appears on are doing big ratings and the last house show run without he Savage Road Warriors or Steiners did big business puts the million dollar contract and large cut of every pay-per-view show in question. Now, of course, everybody's a little nervous about Hall and Nash coming in and Meltzer sort of freestyles that maybe Hogan wanted to make a statement here before those guys come in as well. I know you're going to shit all over all of this, so I'll tell you because it deserves to be shit on. And I think even you, and I know you're friends with Dave and I know you, you've subscribed to his newsletter for 20 years or whatever the fuck it was. But if this isn't an, uh, if this isn't obvious to you that this is Dave taking bits and pieces of, of facts or, or what appears to be a fact and creating a completely false narrative that suits his own agenda, then I don't know what is. And, and this is, you know, the anti-Hogan. Everything is Hogan's fault. Hogan's the booker. Kevin, poor little Kevin, has to do all the dirty work. Hulk Hogan comes in in the middle of the week and changes everything. It's all bullshit. None of that happened. Kevin was the booker. Kevin had the 80s disease as much or more than Hogan did. It was Kevin Sullivan that came up with the Dungeon of Doom and all that crazy 80s stupid shit and, and, and brought in... Uh, King Curtis from Hawaii and sat him up and backstage and Jimmy Hart running around like a fucking insane clown. I mean, that was all Kevin Sullivan. That wasn't Hulk Hogan. So the fact that Hulk and, you know, part of what, again, so many times you'll hear me say part of what Dave said is true. You know, there was, you know, Hulk did have, we've talked about it. Hulk did have um, an 80s kind of psychology, you know, ingrained in his brain. That's where that's the experience, the success that he experienced was that presentation. And it is true that in 95 and 96, he was hanging on to that formula like a lot of people were, including Kevin Sullivan and and others, uh, including the WWF, by the way, at that time. They were hanging on to the same style and presentation. it did change, but it wasn't, you know, the fact Hulk Hogan didn't call up on a Wednesday. We didn't have everything already laid out and we're getting ready to, you know, pack our bags and head to Tupelo to do our pay-per-view. And Hulk Hogan called at 345 in the afternoon and said, hey, change your mind. I'm changing my mind, everybody. Change, change the card. That never, that kind of shit never happened. Well, listen, I, I do want to ask this before we keep going then, because the word is that that is how the Brian Pillman thing happened. You know, you guys... Start advertising. What, 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 what Brian? I'm, I'm a little confused. What, what Brian Pillman thing? Pillman wasn't originally advertised in the match, and at the very last minute, the last week, uh, he starts to become advertised in the match as being one of the opponents for Hulk Hogan. And Pillman no shows. And there's lots of r- rumor and innuendo around this. He's saying that he can't make it because he's had complications from throat surgery. But realistically, he's in the middle of running this loose cannon angle where he showed up in ECW and doing his own thing. And allegedly Wade Keller would write, there was a push by Hulk Hogan behind the scenes for Brian Pillman to be added to the cage match. Sources say that Hogan wanted a leg drop and pin Pillman on pay-per-view since Pillman was getting so much attention lately. Pillman fought the idea, but ended up compromising and returning to WCW on some sort of, uh, attack 
on uh, Monday Nitro against Savage at the end. Originally, Hogan was supposed to beat up Pillman and Zeus, and Swenson were supposed to save him, but Pillman appeared to refuse to cooperate with Hogan by pulling away from him when Hogan grabbed him. It's conceivable that Pillman will fill one of the final two slots, although one man gang and either Shark or Warlord are slated to fill the final two positions. I mentioned all that to say he's not here. And you guys address, we don't know, he's not here. We don't know why he's not here. Um, but he just doesn't want to fucking do it. So he doesn't, he doesn't come in and he gives you. No, no, no. I, I think that's a convenient, I think that's a convenient, a convenient conclusion that whoever wrote that, if it was Wade Keller, that would appear like it might make sense to someone on the outside, especially when you're connecting dots that really don't exist, but you're getting, you know, second, third, and fourth hand information backstage, including probably, I would guess, um, either directly or indirectly from Pillman himself, who was nurturing that, you know, lone wolf kind of uh, loose cannon character. Um, here, here's what I know. Now, I, I can't tell you what I don't know. I can't tell you about conversations I didn't have. I can't tell you about conversations that Kevin Sullivan w- would have had with Pillman. And by the way, those two are much closer than Brian and I were, for the record. Um, I, can't, I can't talk about what I don't know about. Here's what I do know about. What I do know is that in, at, during this period of time, before and after, Hulk Hogan had no real interest in Brian Pillman. Hulk Hogan never expressed to me and it's not like, you know, we had the type of relationship where if Hulk had an agenda and he had something that he felt was important, he was going to kind of keep it away from me and try to get to it through Kevin Sullivan or somebody else. For anybody that wants to, you know, adapt that narrative, I'm telling you right now, you're, you know, you're sticking your head up your own ass just, just because that's what you want to do. Hulk, I, if, if there was somebody that Terry Hulk wanted to work with, I would have been one of the first people to hear about it. Unless... It was kind of like general, you know, what if we did this? Well, what if we did that? Or what if we did this? Which, by the way, those conversations took place all the time, either over the phone or in person or at the Marriott bar, you know, after a show talking about what we might be able to do next week or at any other point in a gym. I don't know. There was a lot of general conversations. But if Hulk Hogan had an issue and if he felt it was important and there was somebody he really felt like he wanted to either put in their place because they may be leaving or because he may felt that he, he needed to get some steam or he wanted to get the rub from it, I would have heard about it. I never heard Hulk Hogan once mention anything with regard to Brian Pillman. And that's no disrespect to Brian. I think Hulk, because he did have the you know late 80s disease, in early 90s disease, I think he only looked at people as goofy as it may sound, like the Giants and Loch Ness and even guys like Jeep and Tiny Lister. Those are all people that had, you know, that were part of the Hulk 80s disease. Those are people he would talk about. I He never came to me once and said, hey, fucking Brian Pillman, I need to, I need to get some of that heat or I need to, you know, we, we, we need to do something here. Never happened. So I, I can't. I can't, you know, say with 100% confidence that there wasn't some conversations about it with someone other than myself. But I had a direct connect to Terry, probably more so than anybody. Um, and I would, and there was a lot of stuff I would hear. I'd go, oh, oh that's never going to work or that's not going to happen. And I would guide the conversation accordingly or, or at least attempt to. But never once did Brian Pillman's name come up with regard to 
wanting him to be a part of this, whatever. I mean, it's, it's great fiction. Great story, bro. As you used to say to me, you know, great story. Probably sells a couple dirt sheets, but eh, not true. So Zeus is owned by the WWF. So instead this, uh, as Meltzer would say, older, flabbier nineties version will go by the name Z gangsta. And Jeep Swenson, you guys have nicknamed on Nitro the final solution. But apparently there is some backlash from some uh, Jewish heritage groups on Tuesday. And now you have to come up with a new name because final solution was, uh, well, something else. So ultimate solution is the name instead. And when we get the match started, Tony tries to give us a rundown of the rules of the match. He says the rules I understand are very simple. Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage will start at the top as a gauntlet. Once they get through a cage, if they win in that particular cage, then those men will be eliminated till they work their way down to the bottom. They can pin Hulk or beat Macho Man Savage at any time, but Hogan and Savage must go through every man to win their match. The NWA did one of these silly triple cages back in 1988. Is that Kevin Sullivan's motivation? And what do you think of the concept of the match? I can't speak to what Kevin's motivation was. Um, I, I certainly wasn't aware of the 1988 NWA match. That goes without saying. Uh, in terms of what I think, what I thought about it, I hated it. I fucking hated it. And I think as I go back and I look at some of these things, you know, there's a reason why, in my own personal taste, as a fan, as a viewer, who happens to have, you know, 30 years of bumps and bruises along the way in the industry, um, but when I look at things... Just like I like Rhonda and 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 Becky and, and Charlotte, you know more Rhonda and, and Becky right now. To be honest about it, because there's just a basic rivalry and story there. It's not a gimmick. It doesn't take a flaming fucking cage with you know wild orangutans and a fucking you know unicorn with dynamite stuck up his ass to make this thing interesting. You know it just. I hate gimmick matches because, and the reason I hate them, I mean, this is a perfect example of, there's no story here. There's no real buildup. There's no reason why we're having this fucking colossal, gigantic, you know, clusterfuck of a match. It's just, oh, let's have this huge cage match. It'll be spectacular. It's, you can't just have a, a spectacle. You can't just have an attraction. You can but it, it's going to leave everybody disappointed. And that's what this was. It was great. Visually, as a talent walked by, you saw those beautiful shots of the cage. and you know, the, Could you build anticipation? Yes. Once you got to the cage and the bell rang, it looked like a monkey fucking a football. It's so uncomfortable. And I, as I watch this today, I'm looking and I'm going, man, these, all of them in that ring. Because look at the spring in that cage. I mean, how do you move around? It'd be like trying to have a great match on an ice, you know, on an ice rink. And it's by the way, just let's just mention horrible. it's fucking dangerous. It's com- horribly dangerous. And, and this was typical with WCW at the time, because we were running and gunning. We were growing. We didn't have a great infrastructure. We didn't have a lot of things that our competition had, you know, we didn't get to the arena two or three days early and have the guys fly in early and let's lay this match out. Let's experiment with it. Let's bring in the director so they can see what this thing is going to look like. So they can possibly get the best shots humanly possible during the court. And we did none of that. We showed up. And for the most part, nobody even got to look at this fucking thing until they got to the building the day of. And as a result, you get this just giant 
monkey fucking a football presentation, everybody looks horrible. There is no story. All it is is a fucking ridiculously big cage match. And it just, I hated it. And I think it's the, it's, it left me scarred, Conrad. There is, there, there is scar tissue in my soul when it comes to gimmick matches because so few of them are worth the time that, that gets put into them. And it always leaves me, at least. Other people love them. You know, if Bully, Bully Ray was sitting here right now, he'd whack me alongside of my head. But my taste, you know, give me story or give me death. If you're just going to throw me, you know, throw sit me in front of a television to go watch this super spectacular, death-defying, flaming fucking orangutan, watch out for the unicorn cage match, I don't care. I just won't care. Let's run through what Meltzer wrote here, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this one up and put you out of your misery. Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage beat Ming, The Barbarian, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Kevin Sullivan, Lex Luger, Zeke Gangsta, and The Ultimate Solution in 25 minutes and 16 seconds. Whew. Hogan and Savage worked with Flair and Anderson on the top level and then threw powder at them to go to the middle level. They faced Sullivan, Luger, Ming, and Barbarian there, and they locked Ming and Barbarian in half of the metal level cage, and then the other four wound up in the wrestling ring. Finally, Jeep and Zeus, who weren't even there at the beginning, and Shivani kept asking where they were, including that Pillman wasn't even there, showed up. They dragged Hogan and Savage into the bottom level of the cage and it only got worse since they couldn't really work down there. And while all of this was going on, Ming and Barbarian were let out of the cage and simply walked backstage for no reason. Finally, Sullivan, Luger, Flair, and Anderson are in the bottom cage. So it's six on two and Jimmy Hart gives Luger a loaded black glove. And when he went to hit Savage who ducked and then he held up and then changed his mind and knocked out Flair for the pin. That actually reads better than it looks. You got to go out of your way to watch this. It's the worst fucking finish in the history of finishes. It gets minus three stars, flaming shit pile main event. Is this the worst main event WCW ever had? On some level, this is worse than the Yeti butt fucking Hulk Hogan at Halloween Havoc, is it not? I, I think it is for no other reason than so much effort and time was put into it only to be completely flushed down the toilet. It just was, it was as horrible as anything I think that's happened under my watch. It was really, really bad. And this, this look, if there's any kind of an upside to this, if there's any kind of positive thing that one could take away from this, and it's certainly the way I tend to want to look at it, it's that this was probably the tipping point for me when it came to creative this is about the time that I said, fuck it. I, I can't just hire people and watch the creative that happens. I have to have my hands in it because we can't keep going this way. And while there was certainly a lot of mistakes and a lot of silly shit creatively that happened, you know, well after, you know, this and well after even the NWO. But I think for me, this was the tipping point. And like I said, I'm kind of having fun with it. But I am scarred for life when it comes to gimmick matches because if, you know, unless somebody can explain one to me that has sufficient amount of the right type of buildup and anticipation and is logical when it comes to, you know, one, one question, you know, why? Why are you doing it? If you can't answer one fucking question, the most simple question of all time, why? Why is Hogan and these and, and Savage in that in this particular cage with these guys. And if that answer isn't like just 
emblazoned in your your consciousness like in fluorescent orange, like you've been staring at a neon sign for hours. If you can't see the reason why almost immediately, then you've already missed the boat. Anybody can put on a spectacle. Not everybody can put on a spectacle that answers the question why. So I, again, if you're going to write a gimmick match, if, 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 if you're looking at gimmick matches as a fan, even if you're not in the business, and whether it's a WWF or anywhere else, ask yourself, why are they doing that? What's, what's the storyline reason why? And, and, and if you enjoy it, you'll probably enjoy it because there's a reason for it and there was a story behind it. If, you, if, if there's not a story behind it and it's just one giant you know, colossal spectacle, maybe that's your thing. I know some people like that kind of thing. But for me personally, if I never see another match that looks even reminds me that this happened, it'll be too soon. I do want to mention this and then, uh, you can rant and we'll, we'll be done this week. Melsworth, right. Pillman had throat surgery on Vanderbilt at Vanderbilt university on March 13th. Gene Okerlund on the WCW hotline then reported that Pillman didn't have the surgery and was making it up because he called the hospital and they indicated there was no record of Pillman having been there. Uh, this resulted in a legal letter from Pillman's agent to Okerlund complete with Pillman's patient discharge sheet and asked Okerlund to make a correction during nitro. Okerlund then missed Nitro with the flu. Is this Brian Pillman story one of the most low-key fascinating stories in the history of WCW? Because it just feels like there's, I don't know, we covered it in the archives, but there is so much he said, she said, Brian really did a masterful job here of covering his tracks from every direction. I agree. I agree. We all have, we all have a different perception. You know, and I, I, I've, I've, I haven't read the entire Brian Pillman book, but I've read portions of it. I've had portions of it read to me. You've done it when we did the Brian Pillman episode. And so much of what I read as it related to me or my interactions with Brian, you know, some of them were true or, or, and obvious and pretty well known to the general public. But a lot of, you know, I read a lot of stuff in that book that was just, fuck, that didn't happen. And that guy would have no way of knowing it happened unless, of course, Brian said it did. And Brian was capable of that. Brian was working and he was working everybody. He worked Dave Meltzer. And I know Dave doesn't want to hear that and doesn't want to believe that because, well, he doesn't want to believe that half the people that worked him work him. But he did. And he worked me, by the way. And he worked a lot of different people. I think the only people that really know what Brian Pil Pil Pillman was thinking was Brian Pillman. I think he worked the people closest to him. And, it, and because of that, it is fascinating because none of us – you know, Dave Meltzer can't definitively prove his perspective was accurate. I can't. You know, nobody can because Brian did such a great job of working everybody. And it is fascinating, and none of us will ever know that we sit down and have a beer with Brian someday. Well, the <laughs> yeah, that's not possible, but we are going to be doing something uh, remembering and celebrating his memory at StarCast. Hopefully people who are Brian Pillman fans will check that out. Stay tuned tonight during raw. We're going to throw up a poll. We'd love to hear what you want to hear next week, right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs>
Those Weekend Golf Guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.